Um, thanks for uh, reading the scripture tonight. It's one of my favorite stories uh, because it reminds me of a story that I heard from um, Christian writer Philip Yancey. He tells a story about some World War II POWs who, while they were still in their concentration camp during World War II, were able to fashion a little um, sort of primitive radio that could pick up some of the signals from the outside world outside of the camp. Well, as the war sort of dragged on, one day over the radio, they heard that the Allied forces had actually made it into Germany and were on their way to free the concentration camps. But here's the deal. The German soldiers that were guarding them had no idea what was coming. And what the, guy, what the men who sort of released from that uh, prison camp had said was, you know, they, they went back in those next few days to do the exact same work that they had been doing for months. But, you know, this time there was a little bit of a spring in their step. The reason why is because they knew their release was coming. They knew that there was something coming in their future that was so great and so wonderful that it transformed the way they dealt with things in the here and now. You do realize that your anticipation of, of a glorious future is what gets you through the hard times. It can actually make the bad times even worse if you don't see any reason for slogging through life. What is that glory that's getting you through uh, old Miss? Well, in the story that Dion just read, um, there's a story of, of, of Jesus telling his disciples a little bit more about what his mission is about. And his disciples didn't really get it because they saw Jesus do some pretty crazy miraculous things. He showed that he clearly had a lot of power. But at one point when one of the disciples, Peter, asked who he really is, Jesus sort of reveals to them that his true mission is to come and suffer. And that he's going to die. But then he's going to rise again from the dead. And the disciples have no earthly idea what he's talking about. But Jesus knows that if they are going to face that suffering, they need something. They need something. And so you get this weird little detail at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 9. Where it says, after six days, Jesus led them up on a high mountain. That's a little weird little detail. Up in there. Why did he include six days? Well, most commentators say that there's a connection where Jesus says, look, there are some of you here that will not die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. And then chapter 9 picks up, and six days later, Jesus is like, and now I'm going to show three of you. In other words, you're about to see something that is so crazy and so over the top. And guess what, y'all? It is crazy and over the top. Three of the weirder things that occur in any of the Gospels take place in what we just read. Bizarre events, but somewhere inside them, the meaning of them holds truths that I think you'll agree are, are invested with enough joy, enough glory, that man, it might just get you through whatever it is God has you going through right now. Hmm. Let's see if we can't dive into that and see what those things might be. Three bizarre things. Number one, Jesus starts to glow in a cloud. That's the first weird thing. Second thing, <laughs> Moses and Elijah show up. All right? And then the third weird thing is, is God the Father speaks, like out loud, <laughs> to him as well. Those are my three things, and it's going to make my little outline here for me. Three weird things. Number one, Jesus begins to shine in a cloud. Tim Keller makes the point that like, it wasn't that there was light shining on him. It was that the light was coming from him. 
What the theologians will tell you was, is that Jesus, as the Son of God, while he was involved in his earthly ministry, was having to exert energy to restrain his true form. And the really true nature that was on his inside. In other words, the fact that he appeared to people as like a normal human being was something that only happened through effort of his own. But all of a sudden, on this mountain, he kind of lets it go a little bit. <laughs> he kind of lets it go and is like, you know what? I want you guys to see a little bit, not even anywhere close to the whole thing, but a little bit of what I look like when I'm standing before my father in glory. And boom, he starts to shine. And as he is shining and glowing, it's funny to hear how Mark puts it. Mark said, and his clothes began to glow whiter than anyone could bleach them. Isn't that a funny way to put it? Like you would say something like that. I don't know. They were like, they were white. Like they were white. You can't bleach them that white. He was glowing. And then as if that wasn't enough, a cloud comes down and gathers around him. Now look, for us, we're being like, well, I don't know. Maybe it was foggy that night or something. No, no, no. This is an important cloud because it's a cloud that shows up all throughout the Bible. Anybody remember the Old Testament stories of how the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, during the day as they were traveling through the wilderness, what did, what did they follow? They followed a cloud. And then that cloud came and rested and actually became kind of like a burning thunderstorm over this mountain of Sinai where God actually like thundered and spoke and gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Actually, what's interesting, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and guess what? When he came down, he was glowing. <laughs> so this is apparently a, this is a party thing for uh, people that get into the cloud. We also find later on that when, when Moses builds that little worship center that they created called the Tabernacle. Remember the little tent that you built when you were in second grade? Sunday school class? Or maybe you didn't. Who knows? But they built that thing. When they dedicated that thing, guess what shows up? The cloud. And it's so thick and so crazy that people can't even get in to do their jobs. The priests can't even make it in. It's so intimidating, so nuts. And then you know, years later, a couple hundred years later, Solomon is dedicating David's big giant temple, one of the greatest of all Israel temples. And guess what happens while he's dedicating it? The cloud shows up. Um... Then later on, you get like these prophecies in Ezekiel that sees in a vision the cloud kind of symbolically come and rise over the Ark of the Covenant uh, and trying to condemn Israel for their apostasy. Later, after this little story happens here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus would himself ascend up into heaven. Guess what he rides on his way up? A cloud. <laughs> and what he says is in the end, when he returns, guess what he's going to show up on? You can respond if you'd like. It's like the audience participation portion of the evening. The cloud. <laughs> In other words, the cloud was the place when God showed up was what the cloud was. And here's the problem. Most of the time, the cloud was fatal. Like when the cloud showed up, it was the presence of God. And you stood before it and you were like, I'm in trouble. It was not good news to have the cloud show up. Which is why the disciples were freaked out. Because they probably thought, we're dead. We're dead. We're done. We're before the face of God. And no one stands before the face of God and survives this. That's why they're terrified. Look, y'all, the, the, the Jewish people during Jesus' time had this feast. It was like a national holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the big moments in this feast was where they would light the temple torches. Now, for most of us, a torch is like a, well, it's like a flashlight. But these torches were giant things. 
huge in circumference. They were two stories tall, like almost as tall as the inside of this chapel. And they would light these things up at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was known as the Festival of Light. And, you know, the, the old uh, the writers from historians of that time would say that it wouldn't just light up the temple area. It would almost light up the entire place of Jerusalem. Well, y'all, the very next day in John chapter 8, we find Jesus standing up in front of the crowd. You know what he says? He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The pillar of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, that was me. That thing that guided them, the thing that filled Solomon's temple, it was me. I'm now here in the flesh who have been guiding you this whole time. And in this little moment, the disciples see and they look at him and they are freaked out. Now, it would be right for you to ask the question, all right, admitted less, Weird. Check the weird box off of that story. Two, th- two enthusiastic thumbs up for weird. He glued, gl- glowed. But who cares about that? What would that possibly have to do with me? Well, brace yourselves. Because the early Christians, that whole thing where Jesus was showing his, what they called his glory, they began to pick up on that theme and realize that for Jesus' followers, he promised them a destiny that was going to look like his. Don't believe me? Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Your faces aren't registering shock and awe. So I'll explain it to you. What they're saying was, is that when they saw Jesus glow with beautiful just indescribable glory. They knew that they were in for the same thing. That's what's going to happen to me. I have that same destiny. And C.S. Lewis picks up on this, y'all, in like the mid-20th century. (laughs) It is awesome. In one of his essays, he says this. He says, God takes the feeblest and filthiest of us and turns us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such love and energy and joy and wisdom as we can't even now imagine. We will become bright, stainless mirrors reflecting back to God his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. He goes on later on to say that if you could see your Christian neighbor now the way in which they will be then, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. They would be so glorious to your eyes. Now look, if this still sounds distant to you, you're not thinking. So think with me. Uh, The guy actually who was the campus minister before me in the 90s is a dear friend of mine and gave an illustration years ago that I love to use about his daughter when his daughter was really little. My daughters are all big girls now and so uh, they don't don't say cute things like this anymore. But Jeffrey used to tell the story about... um, about his daughter coming up to him when she was a little bitty and she would kind of crawl up into his lap and kind of get a little cuddly the way in which little kids will. And it's just awesome. It's the best thing in the world. And she would kind of saddle up to him. She would always look up at her daddy and she would say this on a regular basis. Daddy, is I pretty? What did she want to know? She wanted to know something everybody wants to know. Am I significant in this world? Like, will anybody ever stand up? Nobody's ever heard of this artist. But this guy named Bruce Hornsby, one of my favorite pianists 
uh, uh, artist. Um, had some big songs back in the 80s. But he's got a song called Hooray for Tom. And it's about a kid who's in a spelling bee. And the chorus goes like this. Hooray, hooray for Tom. He won the spelling bee. Spelled the difficult words so right. And now he's on TV. Hooray, hooray for Tom. He's up there for all to see. I hope someday they'll say hooray for me. Look, isn't there something on the inside that knows that you were built for glory? To ask that question, not just of our mommies and our daddies, but of the universe. Is I pretty? (laughs) Is there anything that anyone could find beautiful in me? And some of you have been through experiences thus far, even in colleges, where you're saying, I don't feel very pretty. I don't feel very significant. I don't feel like the man. I feel like I'm just a number. I feel like I'm soiled. I feel like when I remember the events of my past, I feel like I'm dirty. I'm broken. And when these disciples saw Jesus glow, Jesus was like, look, (laughs) I'm in you and you're in me. And in the end, I'm going to turn you into this. And the vision of it completely galvanized them. I got to move on. That's awesome. We can talk about that all night. This is three sermons. I'm going to pack it into one. Number two. Then, as if that's not enough, Moses and Elijah show up. And really, by this time in the story, you should be like, well, of course, two people that have been dead for a little over a thousand years show up on the mountain. Of course they would. Why wouldn't they be there? Why Moses and Elijah? Now, look, I, really, I feel like I need to say this at this point because there's maybe some of you that wrestle with this. And, and it's okay to be weirded out by this. I believe this actually happened. I think that two men whose spirits and bodies had been put in the grave actually came back so that they can converse with Jesus. I believe that literally happened. And there's a reason why I'm kind of insisting on it being a literal thing. You're saying less. That sounds like that's supernatural. Uh, yeah. I believe in a supernatural universe. And we can have a conversation about that if you'd like to. But don't miss the theological significance. And it's not that hard to determine. The way in which New Testament people would talk about the Old Testament scriptures. You ever read this in some places where they'll say, Moses and the prophets? You ever read that? It's like talking about the Old Testament if you were a New Testament person. Well, Moses and the prophets, it was a way of talking about the Bible. So when Moses and Elijah, the sort of chief prophet, if you will, show up, it's as if they're saying, hey, Everything that we talked about in the Old Testament is about this guy. It all finishes in him. And man, there's a whole sermon to be done on how Jesus is your finality. These early Christians saw and understood that everything that they had in Moses and Elijah and everything that was before suddenly was summed up in who Jesus was. Their lives suddenly made sense. And you know what's funny about that? If you really go back and read the Old Testament carefully and you look at the lives of Moses and Elijah, both of them ended up in life as what you and I would call professional failures. We don't have time to do Elijah, but let's, let, let's take Moses, okay? You know who Moses, Moses the guy, leads them out of Egypt. You know, let my people go. You know, he comes out and it parts the Red Sea. <laughs> Goes up to the Holy Mountain and again, starts to glow when he, he sees God's backside. I'm not making that up. It's in the book of Exodus. Go read it. He sees God's backside. What does that mean? I don't know. Okay? But he has that experience. Then he leads the children of Israel through the wilderness, trying to make it to the promised land, you know? The land flowing with milk and honey. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the children of Israel just complain and complain. Blah, blah, blah. We liked it better in Egypt. We don't like you. Blah. You know, let us go back. And at one point, he's supposed to speak to a rock in the book of Numbers. And it's supposed to produce water for everybody so they don't die of thirst. 
But Moses is ticked. He's had enough of these people. He's like, you know what? I've had it up to here. And so instead of speaking to said rock, he hits the rock with his staff. Now the water comes out and the people get what they want. But God looks at Moses. I'm not making this up. And he says, Moses, because you disobeyed me and you hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, you don't get to go to the promised land. Uh, maybe a little harsh. And literally, like he goes up to some mountain, like Mount Nebo, and he can look at the promised land from across the mountain, but he dies in a place that nobody found. A place that no one knows. We couldn't even put like a, a tombstone on his grave. And you get to the end of Moses' life and you could be like, uh, I ain't sure I want to follow this guy. But the way he treats his friends, you know, who needs enemies here? What? But here's the crazy part. That's not the last time we see Moses, is it? Because here in Mark chapter 9, Moses shows up. And you know what he's doing? He is talking. And actually in the other version of this story in the Gospel of Luke, it says, I'm not making this up. This will freak you out. That Moses was there talking with Jesus about his, and the translation says, departure. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's the Greek word, exodus. His exodus. <laughs> That's awesome. You're giggling for the right reason because that is so cool. What is Moses doing? Moses is looking in the face of Jesus and he's suddenly realizing that being a professional success at finally leading his people into the promised land and having all the milk and honey, that none of it was about the milk and honey. That his life was not about getting the things that he wanted to have in this life. That the milk and honey was not the point. The milk and honey was about the one who provided the milk and honey. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus glowing in all of his glory, Moses sees and he gets it and he understands that all of the disparate events of my life have been leading me to this moment to see him face to face. Somewhere in the midst of the winding, twisting pain and disappointments where you think, if I could just find that perfect spouse and have 2.3 children and live in the suburbs. <laughs> I have 2.3 children and I live in the suburbs. <laughs> Who's the point three is the good question. <laughs> My daughter is on the third row back there and she's going, who is the point three? I know who it is. It's not me. When those things aren't achieved, when you get the career that you always thought you wanted and it's terrible, when you get married and all of a sudden that person is just mean, when your parents pass away and all of a sudden that foundation that you thought was kind of solid starts to crumble and you look at your life and you're going, oh, this is disappointing. Jesus came along these early disciples and said, you know what? The promised land is not about the promised land. The promised land is about seeing me in my face. And when you see that, everything else will pale in significance. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added to you. But you make all these other things the first thing in your life, and not only will you not get me, you won't get those things either. Hmm. Hold that thought. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this. God the Father speaks <laughs> out loud. All right. Now, I know for some of you have been like, yeah, God speaks to me out loud. If he does, maybe we should talk. Um, 
We'll have a conversation about that. But this is one time that he actually did. And what's crazy about it is what he says. Do you realize that God the Father gets like three speaking parts in the New Testament? And do you know what he's talking about each and every time? Every time. He's talking about how much he loves his son. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> every time God the Father gets to speak in the New Testament, he's doting over his son. He's talking about how great his son was. And over and over again, when we see the Father, he's affirming the fact that we are his children. And what every theologian who studied this has come to, to an agreement, and I think they're exactly right, is that there is a difference between knowing that you are, are saved by God and that he has done what he needed to do to secure your salvation. He died on the cross for my sin. Maybe he lived for my righteousness. I'm going to heaven when I die. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to all of a sudden be overwhelmed with one day and be like, he's my father. Like, I'm his child. Like, I'm going to be all right. You know, um, Ginger and I actually lost both of our dads in the space of about nine months. That was a really, that, that year was a real hoot. Um, and there's a weird, like, life vertigo that you get when you lose your parents. Some of you in this room have had this experience where you're just kind of like, whoa. And Thomas Goodwin, the old, uh, the old Puritan writer, used to say, you know, it's one thing to have it up here that you know that Jesus is your God and that God is your father. But it's another thing to all of a sudden experience it. Imagine a man and his child walking down the street and all of a sudden, for some inexplicable reason, the father has this just wash of affection and he scoops his kid up and just hugs him tight as they walk down the road. Now, let me ask you a question. Was the child's status before his father any different? No, he was always a child. But what about the experience of that sense of being a son, of being a child? What Jesus is doing here and showing his disciples when they hear the voice. And by the way, this made a serious impression on all these disciples. Like Peter writes about it in one of his letters. <laughs> we were with him on the holy mountain. Like he called it the holy mountain. Wouldn't you after you saw all that go down? We were with him and we heard the heavenly voice say, this is my beloved son, hear him. We were there. We saw it all happen. It made that kind of imprint. You want to know why? They walked away and they found a sure foundation in life because they said, you know what? We are unshakable. We're unshakable because we know that our heavenly father has us. I am not an orphan. And my wife is not an orphan. We are owned by a father, a heavenly father who has spoken through his son. I'm so pleased with you. And here's the kicker. If you are in Christ then that might as well have been said to you. Has it ever happened to you? Has there ever been a sense in which there's this overwhelming, maybe it was in a sermon, maybe it was in a small group Bible study, maybe you're just driving home for the weekend. And there was just this overwhelming sense of being like, like if I'm God's child, I'm gonna be okay. I'm not saying it lasts long. I'm not saying that you live with it every day. But has there ever been a time in which that voice gets spoken to you? Because for these people, it was crazy transformational. Changed the entire course of their life. Look, so how do we conclude with this? <laughs> well, let's conclude with the disciples. You know, on the way down the mountain, they just don't get it. They're completely confused. They're talking to each other. What do you think this whole rising from the dead thing means? They say to each other. 
Well, there's some background to that. Um, there's some prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Malachi, that say that you'll know when the Messiah is coming because Elijah is going to show up. And so my assumption is that Peter said to himself, oh, Elijah's here. Holy mackerel. It happened. So let's go. Jesus, are we ready? I guess we're going to have an army and you're going to be doing your thing or you zap the Romans or something like that. Are we ready? No, he actually disappears and moves on. But, did, but Elijah leaves and so they're all confused, right? And what Jesus is trying to say is you still don't get it. You don't get it. The reason why I wanted you to have this experience is because I need you to know that you're going to need it when you face what I have coming for you. Because my followers are going to be closely acquainted with the same grief that I've known. Paul would go on to say that anybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ will suffer. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, Les, I'm not a Christian tonight. Don't make any bones about being it. And you're not making it really appealing. What do you mean we're going to suffer? What does that mean? It means that you cannot stand by and expect the world to be like, oh, so glad that you're just so religious and following Jesus and everything you do. That's so great. You can't expect that. There will be suffering that comes along with this. But here's the deal. I would actually speak into the, your objection and say, look, ain't no way you're going to avoid suffering. Even the God, most godless of, of, of anti-religious people will experience suffering. But there is a difference in what Jesus is doing. You see, the mystic will come to you and say, oh, you know, we're going to bring you above the suffering. You know, reach this mental state where like, oh, you're just above it all. No, I don't feel it. It's not really there. Other people will be moralistic about it. Well, you're probably suffering because you're doing something wrong. I mean, if you're a little holier, have you been reading your Bible? Like, that'd be so helpful. I, I used to suffer and then I started reading my Bible and it's awesome now. <laughs> Is that the idea? No, 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 that's not Jesus' way. Jesus says, look... The way I'm going to help you deal with your suffering is I'm going to enter into your suffering and I'm going to suffer alongside. And when I suffer alongside, I am going to absorb what you feel like suffering means. See, this is the crazy thing about suffering. Man, some of you could give a testimony about this. Suffering has a way of being like a, a, a rock dropped into a pond. You know what I'm talking about? You drop it into a pond and all of a sudden those ripples go out and it goes into every area of your life. Look, I, I am and was an insecure campus minister. And in my 12 years on campus, like, it was amazing. I could be having the best day. And then I'd go out and hang out with one of y'all. And you would say something, like, negative about me or about RUF or something. Probably constructive criticism. And literally, I would be shattered. And, like, by the time I got home, I was like, you know, never did anything good in ministry. I'm probably not a Christian. Why am I doing this anyway? <laughs> I'm serious. Am I the only one that does this? Your laughter tells me no. <laughs> but that's what suffering does. When all of a sudden pain enters your life, my parents are getting a divorce. My grandmother has cancer. Like, like, like everything's falling down around me. I failed that test and now I've got to do another semester. I've got to face my parents. That suffering ends up going out into every little nook and cranny of your life. And what it makes you do is to think it's not just that she broke up with me and told me that she didn't love me anymore. It's that I think I'm unlovable. It's not just that they chose the other person to get the job over me. It's not just that. It's that I don't think I'm valuable at all. That's the little voice, is it not? 
It's not just that he rejected me, it's that I'm ugly. Look, all around us, suffering is threatening to call bigger forces at work. And Jesus comes along and says, I am coming to absorb the worst of suffering so that you can face your suffering as if it's temporary. It's just for a time. It's a little thing. Because in the end, I'm going to bring you into a glory that if people could see you now, they'd be tempted to bow down and worship you. And you're going to find that all the disparate elements suddenly come and meet in my very face. And you're going to, it's all going to come together in the culmination of a heavenly father that says, I am pleased with you. Good job. And it'll be enough to fix everything. You know what it reminds me of? I'm going to close with this. Reminds me of that great line from Ivan Karamazov and the Brothers Karamazov. If you never read it, you need to. It's a classic. At the, in, in, with, the, with the great doubting Ivan in the end, right before his death, he says this. This is unbelievable. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for every heart, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, and of all the blood that's ever been shed, that will not only make it possible to forgive it, but to justify everything that's happened. And, and I'm going to finish this week in the same way I finished last week. Is there anything inside you that's like, what could possibly be that good to make up and to justify the pain and the brokenness that I see every day around me and in my own life? What could possibly be that? You know what? That's a great question. Come back next week. Because Brian Sorgenfry is going to be talking about it. And the week after that, somebody else is going to be here talking about it. And the week after that, same thing. That's why we come. That's why we're here, to maybe find that vision that would bring the things together. Hey, you can consider that an invitation. Let me pray for us. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us that curiosity? Because we know that curiosity is faith. Lord Jesus, you shone in glory. You shone in glory. You, you, you brought Moses and Elijah, showing those two professional failures what their life really was about. And, Lord Jesus, your heavenly Father spoke spoke delight in you so that if we're in you we can get that delight for ourselves and we don't live that way but man we sure wish we did would you maybe give us a a sense of having a good reason for having come tonight and that is to discover that maybe get a glimpse of it maybe just to wonder if it's really true and in so doing father changes this week we pray it all in jesus name